What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to bring another Midnight Myth episode back. It feels like nine million years since we've done a Midnight Myth. I know it hasn't been that long. It's probably been maybe a month, maybe less than a month. I'm looking at Laurel and she's looking at me. We have no idea. Time is a flat circle. My concept of time has just completely collapsed under the weight of parenthood. There is no time. Parenthood in a pandemic means that time doesn't mean anything to you. But anyway, we have been discussing the idea behind this episode for a few months now. Again, we don't know time. Time doesn't mean anything. It's almost as if we have two different versions of ourselves operating in different temporal spatial realities. And because of that, these versions of ourselves have very different ideas about what time is. There's the parent self. There's the business owner self. There's the podcasting self. And sometimes it feels like they are bifurcated away from each other by some sort of inorganic, operation that stops us from being able to really know when does one self end and another self begin. Where are you going with this, Derek? We are going to be talking about the Apple TV Plus show Severance today. Severance aired this year in 2022. It is a new show, so obviously we will be spoiling it. If you haven't seen Severance on Apple TV Plus, Highly, highly recommend go and check it out and then come back and talk or come back and listen to us. Pardon me. And I can't wait to be discussing this show with everybody. Absolutely. This was one of those shows that we we love the content that Apple TV Plus is putting out. We started really with Ted Lasso and then we've fallen down the rabbit hole and really enjoyed a lot of the shows that they do. And this one slipped past our radar at first And then all of a sudden, everyone in both of our social circles and social media circles was talking about it. It just really exploded onto our radar. So I'm really glad that folks pointed us toward it because in addition to it just being a really fantastic show and a thrilling, suspenseful watch, it has really gotten our wheels turning. And we'll get to talk about some things in our discussion tonight that I feel like we wouldn't have had the opportunity to with 
any other pieces. There are some themes that you'll recognize through other episodes that we've had, and then some others that are like, ah, finally we have a window into this topic. Totally agree with that. So phenomenal show. It's really good to be doing something a little more contemporary. Our last two, we went back to classic works of cinema in which we did The Godfather and then Citizen Kane. So it's really fun to dive back into something modern, something that's fresh, something that's new. And we're going to analyze and discuss it and give it the old Midnight Myth treatment the way that everybody knows and loves. But before we roll up our sleeves and get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. My thing is just that we would love to hear from you. We have just been so tickled and delighted by the relationships that we've made through this podcast. And we have gotten to guest on some podcasts recently. We've gotten to speak to some people that we met through the internet ether. And we're so grateful for that. So if you are interested in reaching out, connecting with us, having a conversation, please hit us up. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We're also on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. That's also where you'll find blogs, extra content, our Patreon, and our merch store. Derek and I also both have additional side projects that spin off from the Midnight Myth beyond just, you know, the project of raising our young and owning businesses and having day jobs. Uh, Derek and Steve are hard at work putting together the next wheel of Ka, they are reading The Stand, and I cannot wait for them to get back into the studio and discuss The Stand. And then my side podcast, Sleep and Sorcery, uh, will be publishing a new episode later this week. And you can find us on uh, anywhere you can find podcasts, but also on the meditation app Insight Timer. If you ever have trouble falling asleep and you would like to fall asleep to my dulcet tones telling original stories based on fantasy and folklore, then check it out. Awesome. So shall we do our briefest a brief recap? Absolutely. Take it away, Derek. All right. It is a nine episode TV show, so I won't be recapping every single episode. Very brief. This is about four characters who have voluntarily taken a severance procedure, which means that as they go into their job and descend in through the elevator, a computer chip severs their memories so that while they're at work, they have no idea who they are outside of work. They have no idea what that person does. And as they leave work, they have absolutely no memory of what they did while they are in their job. This creates two different versions of the selves, one called the innie, the person who spends their entire life at their job, and then the Audi, the person who lives the life outside of their, their job. The company that these four characters work for is called Lumen, and we are introduced to a new character named Heli R, who rebels against the system and wants to learn what they're doing. The innies don't even know why they're doing the job they're doing, as our four characters work for a department called Macro Data Refinement, where they have to intuitively feel motions based upon numbers on a screen and then move those numbers into a box. We find lots of additional mysteries as these characters are starting. The innies are trying to figure out what they do at Lumen, what Lumen is all about. We have some bizarre dance parties, probably the strangest waffle party of all waffle parties. And meanwhile, we learn a lot through our main character, Mark S., that his Audi is going through a very difficult time as his wife recently died in a car accident. 
Mark the Audi is trying to reconcile his grief and his pain, and he's coming to think that maybe severance is not a good thing for him as he meets his old co-worker who comes and says you can integrate your Innie and your Audi together and everything Lumen is doing, the company that they work for, is a lie and is somehow nefarious. All of this culminates with the Innies hatching a plan so that they can temporarily disable their chips and their Innies can live in the outside world, only to learn that the wellness counselor is Mark S.'s believed to be dead wife living in Lumen. Heli R is actually Helena, the daughter of the owner of Lumen, who took this job as a severed worker as a PR stunt because severance is under political pressure. And the other character, Irving, who is gets to live outside with his Audi for a brief while, who is, as an any, the most devout member of what we learned the Lumen cult because this company is a cult, that his Audi is actually secretly trying to learn who all the innies are, presumably to take down Lumen. And it all ends with Mark S. before his innie gets shut off when the chip gets turned back on, saying his wife is still alive. Whew, excellent recap. Oh my God, so much happens in a relatively limited series And I remember just watching that final like 10 minutes of the finale, which is I I can hardly remember a time I was on such bated breath with television other than like an episode of Game of Thrones and just feeling the total collective inhale of like what is going to happen. And part of me was like, oh, my God, what if this doesn't get a second season? And then I was like, oh, it's Apple. They can do whatever they want. Obviously, they have the money and it's going to get a second season. I um I really appreciate that recap because I think you hit most of the high level stuff. There are so many characters really because we have our innies who we get to know very well and then we have one Audi that we get to know very well and the others that we just meet briefly. So we have two versions of each main character plus we have the families, loved ones and the very nefarious, uh sinister and yet wearing these you know, happy faces of the happy people who work at Lumen, characters of Milchik and Cobell uh, slash Mrs. Selvig and Harmony. So we have a lot of these uh, characters that spin out from it who all occupy an interesting space on the severance debate, but also in terms of their relationships to the Innies and the Audis. And we have this corporation operating as a cult, as a pseudo-religious-like um, company that instills this deep loyalty that even so the severed selves, all they know is Lumen. Their entire existence is Lumen. And yet we see through Mrs. Kobel slash Mrs. Selvig or Kobel slash Mrs. Selvig, I should say, we see that this character has chosen both Innie and Audi because she's not severed to be completely enamored in the cult of Lumen. And all of this is to say that there's a lot of interesting things happening here. It just came out, so this question doesn't really apply. Like, does it hold up? We shall see if five years from now we feel the same way about severance as we do today. But give me your sort of high-level impressions. Hit me with some of the things that you really enjoyed about it, some things that made you want to do a midnight myth around it. Gosh, where do I even start? It is... 
it is such a good show. It's so just deeply compelling. And there are a lot of spaces where your your mind just fires and is like, oh, this reminds me a little bit of like season one of Lost with all of the mysteries. Uh, the the question that gets resolved kind of kind of right away, but uh, but I still spent like the first half of the first episode being like, they're dead, right? This is just the good place. Uh, but nope, they're not dead. It's like, let's resolve that mystery right away, but then open up a thousand other mystery boxes. It reminds me of Black Mirror in certain ways. It reminds me of The Matrix in other ways, and yet feels wholly original in in its own way. So that is that is one reason that I'm just really drawn to it. I also just deeply love the characters. One thing that you said as we were watching the first episode that I was like, oh, dad gummit, I should have been the one to say that, was that it felt very Kafka-esque. And I was like, yeah, you're totally right. I'm going to claim that that was my idea, but it was actually you, even though I'm the like Kafka nerd on the podcast. And that, I think, is a really interesting way into analyzing it, even though it's only one piece of the puzzle, one dimension of the prism that is severance. Uh, Kafka, of course, was known for having these complex, intricate, kind of Byzantine bureaucracies in his stories that our lost protagonists were just dizzyingly uh, imprisoned in and trying to find their way through like a labyrinth. Uh, There's even, we just discovered this today, Apple released a companion sort of book, short story with um, some ancillary materials and the main character of that book is a severed employee whose innie is named Peggy Kay and all of the protagonists of most of Kafka's great works were named Kay or Joseph Kay often in an autobiographical way so that's just one one dimension of why I feel really drawn to severance and I think that's a good place to really begin our discussion on it because if this is anything, it is a deconstruction of the idea of work, of the idea of work in the knowledge economy, the idea of work in postmodernism. And I think that's a place that's worth really discussing right out of the gate. What is this show it's about? It's about people who have a job and they choose to forget every single thing about their job. So even if we didn't have the entire narrative of the innies and the entire narrative of what it means to be an innie and their struggle for identity, their struggle for rights, their struggle for autonomy, excuse me, the very fact that people would say, listen, I would rather forget work altogether is a scathing indictment on the knowledge society that we have built here in contemporary America. It is the conceit is work is so miserable and so bad. You would rather just completely shut yourself off from it so that you go to work, you forget everything that you do, and then you leave work as if you just mute, mute these 40 hours of a week of your life. Now, Steve Jobs famously said in his commencement speech that he did in Stanford University that your work will define who you are and don't settle. Make sure you do something that really makes you feel fulfilled. Well, this is the opposite of that. The work is so unfulfilling, is so ultimately devoid of meaning that you would rather forget the fact that you even did it. And I think that is a place that we should be sort of beginning our meditation on this show 
is that, hey, we all work a bunch of office jobs and they really suck. Yeah, and it's all in the pursuit of that rather empty, hollow phrase, work-life balance. That's how Lumen positions severance as a like PR narrative that they are building around it. It is to give you work-life balance, which is all, always kind of ironic because like you just said, it's 40 hours or more sometimes of your week. That's a significant portion of your life and the idea of work-life balance suggests that while you are at work, you are not living your life. And that is the position that's being taken by Lumen and by severed workers, by the Audis who are like, yeah, sign me up for that because being at work is not my life. I'd rather spend my life in my life. So a little bit of a tongue twister there. But all this is to say, I think this falls somewhat neatly into this emerging subgenre of horror and thriller and psychological exploration that we're seeing, which is the wellness horror. We've seen a few uh, pieces of cinema and television pop up in recent years, like A Cure for Wellness, which came out in, I think, 2016. And then recently, Nine Perfect Strangers on Hulu. These uh, These stories that take place often in, like, wellness retreats, uh, and are focused on how the things that we do to make ourselves well, to make ourselves balanced, to heal ourselves are often rather sinister and uh, corrupt in some way. And I would say Severance falls into that not only because it has this setting of the wellness counselor's office, but also because it is framed as work-life balance, which is a quote-unquote wellness initiative that's a word, wellness, that's kind of losing its meaning because we hear it so much and because often it's it's a pitch that bosses are doing to say, we're going to make life better for our employees by increasing our uh, or improving our wellness. Uh, and usually that's just like, we're going to do some breathing exercises and some yoga, right? How meaningful actually is that? And I think this is a scathing rebuke of so many of the efforts on behalf of capitalism and the market to increase productivity and where uh, the wellness and the work-life balance is just a cog towards serving that ultimate end. I had a job at an office that I despised. I worked at this job for about two years. And I remember, and I was really young in my career, and I distinctly remember having a crisis of identity as I was doing this. Because it was my job, because it paid my bills, I would go into work every day and I'd put a happy face on. And I would tell everyone that I was happy and I would do my job to the best of my abilities. And I hated the job. I hated the company that I worked for. And I hated the mission of the company. And I'm like, I am just going to work every single day and I'm lying. I'm living a lie. And I sat there one day and I added up the amount of time I lied and pretended to be someone that I wasn't versus the amount of time that I felt like I was my true authentic self. And I asked myself, who am I really? Am I really this person that I think I am? Or am I this person that's living a lie? And that led me to quitting that job and going back to school and getting a degree in history and wanting to be like, I want to devote myself to intellectual and creative pursuits because I can't live this lie anymore. 
And that's how much it shook me to my core. And this show puts that lie right in your face. And it challenges it to the core by saying, not only are you going to consciously choose to put on a different face, we're literally going to change the way your brain works so that you can do the happy corporate job and that you don't even realize that you're living this lie. And what severance is fundamentally is a lie, a lie in the service of corporate profit and greed. And so much so that our, our, the workers are so alienated from the means of production that they don't even know what they're producing. It is so deep in that they don't even understand what macro data refinement is, what it does, why they have the reaction that they do. But you do get the sense that there is something sinister happening with it. The lies are even deeper as one of our characters befriends someone from the department that makes the corporate artwork, which is so has so much more manpower than macro data refinement to learn that all of the corporate artwork is so propagandized so much of it that it's all about pitting the other departments against each other. So there can be no worker unity. And this is all about how we have created meaning in a meaningless world. Corporations jobs are to pursue profit. That's why they exist. That's why that they, um, that's why that we have them. What Lumen is proposing to do is to give people meaning, but that meaning is a distortion. It involves alienating people from the means of production, which is a Marxist terms, yes, but I mean it in that sense, so that they don't even know what they're producing, fragmenting people's identities so that they have an innie and an outer self, and the innie self seems to have no human rights whatsoever, and then even furthermore, pitting the departments against each other in these psychological propagandized games so that there can be no severed worker unity so that they can all go on doing the corporate will. Added on top of that, you have the perpetuity wing, which valorizes uh, these corporate identities as heroes. It's not enough that you give 40 hours a week to your corporation every single week. That's not enough. You have to worship the creator of the corporation as the creator deity. You have to participate in the rituals. You're not allowed to have a bad day at Lumen. Every day must be perfect. And in this, it's saying, now that we are in post-modernity, now that we are living in a world where corporate profit is the only good that we are striving for and we do just corporate good, we need to then create a theology and a mythology to fill the hole because it's not enough that you've given your entire, your memories to this corporation. You also have to worship the creators as a God. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I kind of want to give you like a standing ovation. In many ways, there are a lot of things that you said in that segment that kind of reinforce how this is a really great companion piece to Citizen Kane. Like it sort of feels like we've done a hard left, but we've also come to a place that's revisiting a lot of the themes that we talked about last time we got behind the mics, like post-modernity, like 
religion and valorizing uh, and mythologizing a man. Uh, I think there are echoes of Cain in Egan and so forth. Uh, just my my brain just kind of went there. The perpetuity wing, the idea that these innies have only ever known Lumen, and so it is very easy to build a false religion around the founder because the only text they have ever, the only scripture they have ever come into contact with is the employee handbook. And so the employee handbook becomes sacred. They've also preserved the house of the founder so that you can walk through and worship the you know items of his everyday life and they've created these wax statues of his lineage and that creates this uh this feeling of valorization of of sort of mythological mythologizing of the Egan family um yeah I, I i love it it's great other things just some like mythological things that i took from watching it um in particular with the character uh, heli r one her name heli hell kind of resembles that of Loki's daughter, Hel, from Norse myth. Loki has a daughter named Hel. She is a sort of zombie, monstrous um, creature, and Odin fears her, so he gives her the underworld to watch over. And the fact that these characters are in the basement, they go down through the elevator, and that as they go down, they switch into their inny selves. Feels a little bit like that. But I also feel like... There's a lot of Persephone in Heli R. Persephone, who was kidnapped by Hades into the underworld and had to live there six months out of the year. So Persephone lives partly in the underworld, partly out of the underworld, has a innie and an Audi. When Persephone goes into the underworld, the whole world is sad that her mother Demeter stops the growing of grain. I feel like there's this idea that they ascend into this underworld and they see these sort of shades of selves very much the way that we see when Odysseus goes into the underworld and he sees all of these shades of Tiresias and Achilles who are like, uh, listen, we're here, we're going to do this thing, but this is one big machine, man, and you are so much better off being an Audi than an innie, right? You're so much better off being alive than in the underworld, that the severed floor feels like this um, symbolic underworld that these characters go into and leave on a daily basis. Absolutely. There's a lot of underworld. There's a lot of hell in it. I'll also point out that there are baby goats in one of the offices. So goats tend to be associated sometimes with satanic imagery. So I just wanted to throw that in there. There's also a quote in the very first episode, which is titled Good News About Hell, and I'll, I'll paraphrase the quote. It comes from Miss Cobell when she's talking to Mark, and she says, the good news about hell is that it's just a, an imaginative creation of, you know, of humans. And the bad news about hell is that anything humans can imagine, they can usually create. So a really interesting thing to hear from your corporate overlord, right? That, like, no, you're not in hell, but you're also kind of a little bit in hell. Hell's not real, but if we can imagine it, we can make it. And it probably looks like the severed floor of Lumen. So I love that. I'll throw in one last, uh, you know, kind of fun little tidbit, which is uh, I was interested in the 
emotional reactions to the numbers that the macro data refiners have to uh, sort their their bins into. And I did a little bit of digging on this because each emotion that you feel when you sort a um, a batch of numbers is corresponded to a, a pair of letters. And those pairs of letters correspond to Keir Egan's four tempers, what he believed were the four tempers of the human body, that once you got them into um, balance with each other, then you achieved some form of perfection. And those tempers were woe, frolic, dread, and malice. And they started out as a company, Lumen started out as a company making topical salves, and they are in biotechnology, pharmaceuticals, it's all very nebulous, they have their hands in many pots, but these four tempers sound very similar to the four humors uh, of humorism, which it, it emerges out of Hippocratic medicine, which is ancient Greek, uh, and it uh, actually influenced a lot of literature and drama in particular. The idea that you have four humors in your body, those being blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile, and you want to get those into some kind of stasis with each other in order to be healthy and in order to be integrated. But the drama that emerges out of it usually uh, becomes what we call the four temperament ensemble. And we've talked about it on the podcast before. So there are some episodes where you could go into more detail, but it uses the archetypes of those four humors to create an ensemble that is all very, um, all the characters are very different from each other, but they are in balance somehow. One is really excited and happy and enthusiastic. One is really vengeful and spiteful. And then maybe one is a little more melancholic so you have this balance of these four characters. There are four desks in macro data refinement, so I'll leave you to figure out which character exemplifies which temper or which humor. Can I ask you a total Midnight Myth boomerang-style question? Absolutely. That has nothing to do with that point, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, go ahead. I'm thinking about how Mark's job before he became a severed employee was that he was a historian. Yeah, and that his brother-in-law is also an academic, and every one of his scenes with his brother-in-law's brother-in-law's friends, presumably these are also academics, and they're all a bunch of morons. They're idiots, yeah. And they're all pretentious. They talk to hear themselves talk, which we do too. We have a podcast, so we are literally talking to hear ourselves talk right now. But they talk to hear themselves talk. They don't really say anything of substance, Mark really thinks his brother-in-law is an idiot. It seems like Mark's sister agrees that he's an idiot too. Yeah. It seems like she, she... She kind of tolerates him, but she's rolling she, her eyes. Yeah, she loves him, but she thinks he's a buffoon as well. And certainly all of his friends are buffoons and they're fake and they're really not kind at, at all. If one of them, Rebecca's like, I have to change my name again after reading this chapter. It's like... Yeah deeply fickle and yeah. And I wonder if there is something to be said where this show is saying these two pillars that current American society rests on one corporate America, which is like the pillar that almost all of us are deeply involved in corporate America to one degree or another. And the other is academic life and really saying that these two things, these two institutions that 
postmodernism should tell us are the institutions that should be unlocking human freedom and potential. Are, is this show saying that they both fail? Because it's clearly saying that corporate America is scary and cult-like. Is it also saying that academia is buffoonery and stupidity and really well-dressed-up words, but very poor meaning, tons of microaggressions, and ultimately writing frivolous books about nothing. I think that's a super good point. Keep in mind, too, that the final reading in the finale episode, there is a cult-like atmosphere around Rickon, around the brother-in-law, and his reading of his kind of ridiculous self-help book that nonetheless is extremely influential in uh, starting a macro data refinement revolution. But there is, yeah, like Rebecca says, I have to change my name again. It's transformative. All of these people who are sitting, listening to their friend read his book aloud and being like, yes, he's a prophet, basically. So there is this, uh, there is this tearing down of that institution as well. And this reminder that academia and that the, um, the sort of publishing aspect of Rickon's pursuits are also corporate, are also you know, financially motivated. He's trying to make money off of his ridiculous self-help book. And then the book gets introduced and snuck into the severed floor through, I think, Milchin steals the book, if I remember correctly, and leaves it and then... Off of Mark's stoop, yeah. And then Mark finds it. And then they start to read it, but yet that book means so much to them that I'm, I'm trying to kind of struggle, like... Is this book a really terrible book, the way that Mark's Audi makes fun of it? Or is it a book of transformative change? Because the innies do read it, and based upon the, the innies reading it, this is the first time they have read anything that's not Lumen cult propaganda. And it has a huge, like, it's like a wildfire. It inspires them to revolt. So I wonder if the, I'm wondering what the lesson the takeaway there is, is the show saying academia will fail you. These are a bunch of buffoons. They really don't have the answers or actually maybe they have some answers. You, if that's the only thing you've ever read, you're at least better off reading this BS academic self-help book than you are just corporate propaganda. Yeah. I mean that, that might be the answer. It's a really good question. Keep in mind too, that like, Rickon's book is called The UUR, right? And it is it is deeply ridiculous, but it's also what he's writing are often inaccurate, but they're just cliches, right? And cliches carry often several grains of truth, if not like a deep amount of truth. They're just cliches because they've been said a lot. They become cliches for a reason. So while he has stupid, uh, you know, bonkers ideas about Mozart killing children by slamming their heads into pianos. Uh, he's also saying things like, you are not your job. Your job needs you more than you need your job. He starts the book with this very silly, very pretentious question to the reader where he's like, something about you, something about you. But what is you? Who are you? And to pose that question to an innie, who is very aware that their Audi has made a decision to imprison them in their labor and who in Helly's case has been told by her Audi, you are not a person. That is a revolutionary thing to read. 
because all they have ever read in Lumen material is you are part of the collective, you are a cog in a great wheel, you are serving the mission, you are exemplifying the virtues, you are Lumen, and Lumen is you. But Rickon is saying, what is you? Open-ended question. Love it. That actually leads me to where I want to go next. If, Great. If you'll permit me a pivot. And I guess we've been doing analysis this entire time. Yeah, it was like the grab bag of analysis, but we've got some... Uh... There's so much to severance and so much to unpack here that we're not going to hit it all tonight, I think. But that is how great this show is and how interesting this show is. And I know there's a lot of conversation about what does Lumen actually do? What are the mysteries? But you'll notice that we're not talking about those because honestly, what this show did in season one was enough. It was enough. I don't need to know what Lumen does to know that severance is wrong. Yeah, I think the questions that it's asking about identity and value and labor and capitalism are more interesting than the questions about what does Lumen do? Why is Miss Casey on the testing floor? Although I do want to know the answers to those. Yes. Things. Oh, absolutely. The mysteries, yeah. I do want to see absolutely. them. It's a television show, but I don't think that's what is the most interesting reflections, yeah. Yeah. especially from the midnight myth lens. There's nothing wrong with wanting to know the mysteries. I do too. I want to know I want to know, Irvin, are you a soldier? Are you trying to take them down? What is your Audi all about? I want to know all of these things. But I want to also identify how Lumen kind of gets away with doing what they're doing. Yeah. And I think it has to deal with the philosophy of the self, which is to say, what is a self? How do we identify a self? How do we define a self? And I think that has both important philosophical and moral ramifications. It also has real-life legal ramifications because that's a question that we reconcile with outside of the role of film and TV. And I want to talk a little bit about John Locke and John Locke, who created sort of the modern conception of the self as we know it today. And that self is a legal self in the current American and British uh, legal systems in most Western civilization systems, they take the ideas of self from John Locke. So previous to John Locke, really quickly, there was a belief that there was a body and that, that there was a soul. Those were two separate things. When the body dies, the soul lives on. Depending upon your religious beliefs, that determines where the soul would go. But everybody was in agreement that there were these two things, the body and the soul. John Locke posited that there was a third thing, not just a body and a soul, and he called it consciousness. So he invented the idea that there is this idea of a self that is conscious. The conscious self, John Locke recognized as the actual real true self. It is because we are conscious that we are who we are, and that is linked to our memory. So it is our memory that makes our conscious self sustain over time. Because we can remember what we were before, we know what we are now. Make sense? Yeah. He also thinks that a person is a quote-unquote a forensic term. So let me quote John Locke here appropriating actions and their merit, 
and so belongs only to intelligent agents capable of law and happiness and misery, end quote. This is from Identity and Diversity. This is the argument where John Locke is creating the modern version of the self. So we must be independent agents that are intelligent, meaning that we are our own self. We are governed simply through ourselves and that we are capable of law, meaning we know morality, happiness, meaning we can feel joy, misery, we can feel pain, meaning we have emotions, we have morality, and that we have emotions, and this is what creates us as selves. John Locke says, quote, consciousness always accompanies thinking, and tis that that makes every one to be what he calls self, end quote. So he had this thought experiment that um, pretty famous, and it is an identity experiment where imagine two people and that these two people are just living their lives. One's a prince, one could be a cobbler. And if you could swap their consciousness, which is to say, swap their memories into each other's brains, who are they now? Locke would argue that though the body is the same, the soul is the same, because the memories have changed, that the self has changed. So if you take the memories of the prince and put them in the cobbler, and you take the memory of the cobbler and you put them in the prince, they now have switched. Even though everything else is identical, they are now two different selves. It's like Freaky Friday. It's like Freaky Friday. Yes, exactly. It's the famous John Locke Freaky Friday experiment. (laughs) Absolutely. And so that is exactly what it is. So there is a sameness that consists through memory and that this is the the conception of the self. This is also the basis of things like the insanity defense for crimes that did not exist until this essay. So John Locke's conception of the self made itself, made its, it was so prominent that it got into law where someone could claim insanity or temporary insanity because an insane person is not the same self as the same person. Yeah, you could say you can't lock me up because I was not myself or Correct. I am not myself. And hence, I, I, not myself? I am not accountable for my own actions. The basis of the self becomes the basis of modern enlightenment western civilization where that they then says now that we know that there are these this is this third aspect of being not body not soul but consciousness self that the role of governments is to unlock the potential of the self that selves then have rights they have rights to according to john locke um they have rights to uh, life liberty and the pursuit of property sound very familiar, but it was paraphrased by Thomas Jefferson, who said that Americans have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Almost a direct quote there. So John Locke's idea is that selves are a third aspect to being alive and that it sustains in time through memory. Well, let's take that application and let's apply it to the characters in this show. There are characters that have a sense of continuity and self. Those are the Audis. They know who they are. 
They know the choices that they make. They are considered the self, the true actual self. When you take their memories and you bifurcate them and you put a wedge between them, it then fragments into two different entities. But in a Lockean view of the self, only one actually qualifies as a self, which is the Audi. Only the Audi is an independent agent. Only the Audi gets a, continu a continuity of all of their life's memories. There's a reason that the test that they give people when they first get severed is, who are you? What country are you in? Can you name any of these like obscure facts, the five questions? They are asking five questions to obliterate the connection of memory to say, okay, we have purged the Audi self completely. Now what we are left is an innie, and the innie never sleeps. The innie has no agency. The innie lives in perpetuity at their job because they cut off the memory of doing the the day-to-day -day things like eating, sleeping, relaxing, having fun, having sex, all of these things that the that the Audis get to do, they become less than selves. They become non-people. And because they are non-people, Lumen doesn't have to respect them as people, which means Lumen can indoctrinate them, they can beat them, they can torture them, they can do whatever they want to them. They can feed them honeydew. They can feed them honeydew. And pretend that's like a prize. Absolutely. They can totally do whatever they want to the innies. And as long as the outies continue to say, yeah, the paychecks look good, the innie self is so, the innie self in a Lockean self, a Lockean sense, pardon me, is a non-self. It is not a full and complete independent agent with memory. And because of that, Lumen is completely okay oppressing the innies to the utmost degree because they are not people. It's telling that when Hel Hella, Heli, Heli, yeah, says she's going to cut off her fingers, that Helena then says a video, you're not a real human. You're not a real person. You don't get a choice. You do anything to my body and I will make you pay. Making quite literal the lack of self. Yeah, I think that's excellent. I also note the fact that the innies receive an identity. They receive a name that is often a sort of nondescript or somehow a, you know jumbled version of their own name, usually with just a... Uh, you know, an initial for a last name. Helena Egan becomes Heli R. Mark Scout becomes Mark S. And so all you get is this kind of name tag that's like, here's all we know about you. They do, however, form these kind of distinct personalities, which is really interesting. They're often very different at work than they are on the outside, which actually is kind of like reality, right? We code switch. We are different when we're at work than we are when we're at home most of the time, unless you have like a really loosey-goosey job and you're able to just be your authentic cursing like a sailor self. But I sort of see how 
the Lockean argument could be made on both sides of that legal debate. Like I can see lawyers in the courtroom saying, okay, well, these innies have a distinct personality. These innies have motivations. These innies have continuity of coming to work each day. They remember walking through the hallways and they know how to get to macro data refinement from the elevators because they have a sense of continuity and because they have their own names. So I sort of see how they could make that argument on either side of the aisle. I think it's worth noting that Locke may be wrong. That sure. memory is not the link what makes the consciousness a self. He could be incorrect in that. And I think there's some evidence to suggest that. If I have brain trauma and suddenly my brain doesn't work anymore and I don't remember who I was, do I stop being? Yeah, Does am Derek, I no longer conscious? Is Derek Jones no longer Derek Jones? Uh, another movie that delves deep into this is the movie Memento, in which a character can't form new memories. And because they can't form new memories, they forget everything after 30 minutes and they're constantly resetting. Are they still not the person they were? And I think one of the things that this show does well is it deconstructs the concept of the Lockean self and says, hey, these are still human beings. They still have rights. They're miserable. And this company is mistreating them. And all they're trying to do is indoctrinate them in a cult. And that is not okay. I think we can all agree watching Severance that the treatment of the innies is abhorrent. And it's abhorrent because we intuitively think there's some act, like, semblance of humanity and selfness and self to them that they become these new independent people. But it is worth noting that because their memories do get severed, it does create two different versions of the same person. And the way that it's acted, that you can tell when an actor is going through the Umbrella, Adam Scott is brilliant in this. Yeah. When he goes through the umbrella, when he goes through the elevator, I should yeah, say. Yeah, there's a camera effect that's done, but there's also just a very subtle facial uh, expression change. And you can see very clearly the difference between Mark Scout and Mark S. There's a lift that comes into his face when he enters the severed floor. There's a sag that happens when he leaves and remembers that, oh yeah, he's miserable and his wife is gone. So the real question is, is, what we should ask of ourselves is in a world where God is dead, in a world where all we have left is academia and corporate America, how do we hang on to who we think we really are? How do we become our true authentic selves? And what Severin says quite cynically is that corporations will fulfill that for you and it will always be exploitative in its nature. And this show imagines the exploitation taken to a science fiction level Kafka-esque absurdity. But it still is true that even to date, it is still very exploitative. Absolutely. Yeah, the thing that really resonates with me is this uh, propaganda wing that only serves the purpose of pitting the departments against each other, keeping them apart so that they're not, you know inspired to organize or form a collective bargaining unit, it's almost like, you know, what if there was a corporation in America that had like spyware on their employees' phones to make sure they're not texting about unionizing? Um, imagine if that 
kind of thing were to happen. And also think about Tesla, who I greatly admire a lot of the technological and innovative prowess of Elon Musk. But if I imagine, I don't work for Tesla, but I imagine that it's not enough to just admire Elon Musk's ability to drive innovative and technological change. Everything he says and does has to be gospel. You've got to be all in on Elon Musk. You've got to be following everything that he says and does. And this is sort of the corporate culture that reveres the founder so greatly. Um, My father once worked for Walmart at a corporate level, and it is very much a cult of personality around Sam Walton. And everyone's just like, you've got to be like Walton. Walton believed this. Walton did that. Because Walton built this great company, Sam Walton built this great company, then there's this personality cult around it. It's a real phenomenon that exists where it's not enough to just give your 40 hours a week. You have to be so all in that you're willing to change the way your brain works. Citizen Kane again, right? You know, the 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 lionization of men and media magnates and moguls and founders. It's actually an excellent segue into what I wanted to bring into the conversation tonight. And believe it or not, I actually want to bring the historical angle, not Derek today. Although John Locke is a little bit historical. But I want to talk a little bit about a wacky little piece of American history that you may or may not be familiar with that I think has some really potent parallels in Lumen and Severance. And so I want to talk a bit about the Oneida community. Uh, This was a 19th century phenomenon founded by a man named John Humphrey Noyes. John Noyes. This guy was deeply inspired by the preacher Charles Finney, who was part of the Second Great Awakening, and he had this massive religious conversion, ended up in the seminary at Yale and had such controversial ideas at Yale that he got himself kicked out. So what happened was that during his research, he discovered what he thought was incontrovertible proof that the second coming of Jesus Christ had already actually happened in about the year 70 CE. From this, he inferred that mankind was now free to pursue heavenly perfection on earth rather than waiting for the afterlife. So it's a school of thought known as perfectionism. It's like, okay, The earth is the place where we will make our heavenly home if we live according to scripture and we make it our heaven on earth. So he becomes kind of persona non grata in the seminary community. Meanwhile, he's married to a woman named Harriet Holton. And in the early years of their marriage, they experience some really great tragedy. She gives birth to five children and four of those children are born very prematurely and do not survive. They're both justifiably wrecked and uh, just devastated by this, and they decide to separate uh, temporarily. While they're separated, they're actually like, this is kind of great. I'm really satisfied and I'm really fulfilled exploring other pursuits and relationships with other people, although I still love my spouse very much. And this leads noise to think maybe traditional marriage is not the way to go, Maybe it's time to open up my relationships, and maybe I can find some scriptural precedent for this as well, which, of course, he does. So he's led to believe that if we're making heaven on earth, we can do so by abolishing traditional marriage and creating what he calls complex marriage. It's a form of 
free love, if you will. He's also thinking about the role of sexuality and sexual intercourse as both a reproductive and a pleasurable activity, and he starts to preach what he calls male continence, which is a kind of like male birth control among the people that follow him. These ideas are extremely controversial and end up getting noise arrested for adultery, but they also lay the groundwork for what will become the Oneida community, which is a free love, complex marriage commune that settles in Oneida, New York. That's where they end up settling, but there are some spin-off communes in Connecticut, Vermont, and New Jersey, kind of all over the place. They build a communal home, so they all live in this company housing together, and they work, they live, they play, and they all get down together. Everybody is married to everyone else through this complex marriage idea, and it's pretty much forbidden to be in any kind of exclusive pairing or marriage. It's also trying to support itself financially, so these people who follow noise start doing work for other people, and then go into work and business for themselves. So they get into manufacturing. And they become actually very successful at it. Some of the stuff they're doing is canning vegetables and fruits that they've farmed in the commune. One of the members invents a really like novel trap for fur animals that ends up being wildly successful, and they make a ton of money on it to a point where they actually have to hire contract workers. So they have their commune, and then they have employees and a labor force that are supporting this. Most notably, uh, even though this is later in their uh, existence, they form a silverware company, and the silverware company is still around to this day. The relationships between the community members, though, were strictly monitored, and the couplings had to be approved by committee, especially if they intended to reproduce. So you were only permitted to have children in the Oneida community if the match was deemed spiritually beneficial by noise and the committee. So you, they were trying to engineer like perfect spiritual children uh, and Noyes ended up usually being the father of those children. He, he fathered a large number of the children who were born in the commune. So in essence, they were practicing eugenics. It was a proto-form of eugenics. Everyone in the Oneida community was expected to work. That was men and women, which is one of the more kind of interesting little historical pieces about this because this is the 19th century and the women were a very significant part of the workforce in the Oneida community. So while there are a lot of things that we kind of squint at with them, they also were kind of liberating women in some ways. They held these big bees to get projects done so folks would come together and motivate each other to work because that was a part of living in this commune. And they also kept a practice called mutual criticism, which was where a member of the community would put themselves forward voluntarily to like sit in the middle of the room and be criticized and honestly evaluated by everyone else in the commune. And it probably got pretty brutal, right? Like if you got to, you know, just go in a room and honestly evaluate someone and say like, these are the grievances that I have with you, I feel like that could get pretty nasty. Uh, but they would also hold all kinds of entertainment in the shared home, possibly a music dance experience, maybe even a waffle party, I don't know. Eventually, uh, this 
practice starts to fall out of favor. The younger generation is not really interested in group marriage. They want to be able to have kids freely. They want some autonomy about their relationships and their marriages. They want these traditional romances. So it really starts to crumble. Meanwhile, Noyes is trying to hand off the leadership to his son, who is not as good a leader as he is. And meanwhile, like, the authorities are trying to come after him for charges of statutory rape. So he gets out of Dodge and eventually is like, I think you guys should stop doing the group marriage thing and maybe just stick to the silverware. Uh, so the Oneida community dissolves as a commune and converts itself to a joint stock company, and that's in 1881. And to this day, they still make silverware and dinner plates. And my family actually has some Oneida... Uh, plates. I think we have some of the mugs downstairs. Some of those black and white mugs have Oneida on the bottom of them. And I used to live on an Oneida way, um, the street. So there's some like connections in my family to that for some reason. The question is, do they put on a mask of the founder and sit on a bed while the the Joker, the crone, the goat, and the maiden come in and do a sexy dance? Right. I mean, maybe there is, I think, just in this historical story, such an interesting confluence of work, labor, right? Sexuality, controlled relationships, and, uh, and, and these sort of strange rituals around that confluence, right? Um, there's this charismatic religious founder. It's a 19th century company that has a cult-like aspect to it, but that has continued in some form to this day as an enterprise, as a financial enterprise and as a successful financial enterprise, Oneida is not Lumen. Like this is not a company that made silverware and now is the leading biotech firm and has its fingers in all the pots. They really just are making nice forks and knives and spoons. But I thought there was some interesting parallel there to this idea that a community really came together around the personality of this man who created scriptures of his own, created a kind of religion around himself, and had, had such control over bodies, over relationships, and over identity. Uh, I, I just think it's a really interesting connection. I don't think necessarily Severance was like, let's base it on this, but I like to point at this as a piece of like, there's a lot of strange and uh, sort of ritualistic connections between uh, enterprise, between business and religion in America because we're this new country, right? Because we're, we're founding myths through the modern world. I absolutely love that. Thank you so much for doing all that research. No idea this existed this crazy Christian sex cult that makes silverware in New York. Yeah. In New York. And I am only in America. Could a thing like that happen? Absolutely. I have a lot more to say, but we are pushing up against time here. I think severance is one of the more interesting mystery shows. I think there's a lot that we can look forward to in the next season of severance. And I think Ultimately, what I take away from it is that if you're not satisfied with what you're doing in life, do not trust the corporate overlord to get you there. You have to be the free independent agent. 
if you feel bifurcated, if you feel like there are multiple selves out there, find a way to bring them into harmony because we only get one shot at this thing and we gotta do our best and you owe it to yourself to not fall into the corporate trap of wellness, but to actually try to be well. Workers of the world unite, right? And until next time, be kind.